everybody, Magnus here. You know, a lot of people make fun of 1990s comics. The way they tell it, you'd almost think they weren't avidly collecting those same comics themselves. But me? I've got a real soft spot for 90s comics, and so, starting in December of 2017, I'm launching a six-part mega-series called Cover Date, January 1991. The idea is to talk about, well, comics with a January 1991 cover date. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is going back to January 1991 for a look back at what comics were really like. Is it really as bad as people say? Well, there's only one way to find out. I want you to test drive some 1990s comics along with me. Who knows? You just might find something to fall in love with all over again. So, come back to January 1991 with Trennis Magnus for a fond, festive, frolicking trip down memory lane. The fun starts in December 2017 only at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. You can find Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com or by searching in iTunes. Or, I guess you could search on Google if you're feeling really lazy. Cover date. January 1991 because 1990s comics are awesome. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about Smallville in every eighth episode of this podcast. You see, boys and girls, I follow a pretty simple format for this show. I get uh, six episodes where I talk about basically whatever I want. The seventh episode is intended for me to get together with Chris Honeywell to talk about weird stuff, and then... The eighth episode, as I say, is all about Smallville. And then after that, I start all over again with another six episodes about whatever I want, a seventh episode with Honeywell, another Smallville episode, etc., 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 right? Now, about a year, actually, I guess a little bit more than a year ago, I started yammering about what I call Smallville Phase 2. If you were so inclined, you could view the first three seasons of Smallville as Phase 1. Smallville Phase 2 starts with the dreaded fourth season and then goes right on through to the end of the sainted seventh season. Now, I'm talking about the fifth season, and as it goes for the fifth season, Clark's covered a fair amount of ground this year. He decided to give up his powers back in the episode Arrival, which is to say the season premiere. Under the circumstances, his decision to forsake his powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men is quite completely understandable. I mean, the guy's been through a whole lot of bullshit, especially lately, and it's been trouble that honestly wouldn't have happened if not for the fact that he has powers. But what he ultimately discovers in, early on this season is that he needs 
his powers, and on top of that, a fair interpretation of the events of those episodes kind of served to reinforce the idea that maybe, just maybe, the town of Smallville needs him to have his powers. Two whole episodes were spent on teaching Clark that lesson, guys, so this is not small potatoes. In the episode Aqua, Clark began to realize that he is now officially on the opposite side to Lex Luthor. That's the bad news. The good news is there are, there are ways of confronting Lex that don't necessarily require Clark to use his abilities. This is the first time that Clark's begun considering the idea that the pen might be mightier than the sword. And that's an important thing for Clark Kent to understand. In the episode Thirst, you know, maybe the less said about Thirst, the better. In the episode Exposed, Clark's major takeaway lesson is that no matter what life throws at him, they're still right and they're still wrong. If Clark was a more bitter and cynical and jaded kind of person, the events of the episode Exposed, which I talked about uh, a couple of retrospectives ago, the events of the episode of uh, the episode Exposed would have destroyed him. But they didn't. Instead, what Clark decided to do was seize upon the victories that he was able to win during that episode. He was at least able to exonerate Jack Jennings. He arranged for Mr. Lyon's arrest by Interpol, and he solidified his relationship with Lois by saving her from being smuggled off in a human trafficking ring. Clark didn't allow himself to be overwhelmed by Jack's corruption or by Mr. Lyons getting away with tons of other crimes. Sometimes in life, well, it's an ugly fact of life, but sometimes all you can manage is the small victory. Back in season one, Clark wouldn't have been able to tolerate the events of Exposed, but what we're seeing here in the fifth season is a kind of older and kind of wiser Clark Kent scoring the victories that he can and not really worrying that he can't always perfectly deliver perfect justice perfectly every single time. What really counts in the end is that Clark puts a, a special premium on friends, family, love, and loyalty. And those are the values that sustained him and, and exposed as an episode. Another big issue, though, is Clark is very much still attached to his human life. Brainiac tried to drive a wedge between Clark and mankind two different ways and in two different episodes. I speak here of the episodes Splinter and Solitude. But each time, Brainiac was defeated because Clark wouldn't give up on his human life, and his human life wouldn't give up on him. This is a positive development. For now. But the time's going to come when Clark's commitment to the pretense of being human is arguably going to be his greatest weakness. But for right now, that's probably the only thing that saved the world in Splinter and in Solitude. Lexmas was an overall more fun episode, at least for Clark's particip uh, participation. He got to play the role of Santa Claus from Metropolis for one night, and a wonderful time was had by all. For Lex's part, though, this is the first concrete, unmistakable sign that Lex is sliding toward the dark side. 
This isn't a decision that Lex is making arbitrarily. The events of the past five seasons have taken their toll on Lex Luthor. It's a logical decision for him to make under the circumstances. But to circle back to Clark, Reckoning was Smallville's 100th episode, and a lot of interesting things were set down. For one thing, Jonathan Kent is dead. For two things, Jonathan Kent is dead. And it's all Clark's fault. Up to now, Clark has usually been able to save the day, but even on those occasions when he failed, the casualty in the great majority of cases was a total stranger. Those losses don't hit all that close to home for Clark when you come right down to it. But this time, Clark's poor decision-making saved Lana, yeah, but that comes at the expense of Jonathan Kent's life. If Clark hadn't told Lana his secret, she wouldn't have died in the alternate timeline. But saving her life allowed Jonathan to have his big confrontation with Lionel in the barn, the strain of which gave him a heart attack. And Jonathan's heart was only weak because of Clark and decisions that he's made in previous seasons. So, no matter how you care to look at it, Clark owns this. And the specter of Jonathan's death is going to haunt Clark for a long time to come. That much was clear in the episode Vengeance. Clark was extremely emotionally raw in Vengeance. Now, he's slightly less raw now, but that doesn't mean he's okay. It's going to be a pretty long time before you can say that he is okay, in fact. Even so, Clark is still pretty functional right now. He showed true loyalty to Chloe in the episode Tomb. Then he showed true friendship and acceptance to Victor Stone and Cyborg. So, while it is true that Clark no longer has Jonathan's guiding moral influence in his life, he's still a good man trying to do right. And that counts for a lot. Not completely perfect, though. Clark's punishing himself for what happened to Jonathan, and in the episode Hypnotic, Clark dumps Lana even though he has a perfect excuse to get back with her. And kind of like his decision to abandon his powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men earlier this season, his, de his decision to just allow him his breakup with Lana to proceed is actually pretty understandable considering the circumstances. Clark's secret has caused so much pain and suffering for people that it actually kind of makes sense that he'd want to cut his losses with Lana and spare her any further misery. This secret got Jonathan Kent killed. So who's to say where things might go for Lana, guys? It's going to be a long time before we see Clark find a way to truly accept his powers and his alien heritage. And we should say that in Clark's mind, having superpowers is one problem. Being an alien is a separate problem. They're related to each other, but they're still separate burdens. In Clark's mind, his powers cause pain for other people, especially the people that he cares about. And also in his mind, his alien heritage causes pain for him personally. They're two separate problems, and they have to be resolved separately. And they will get resolved, but not for a pretty long time. Still, in the episode Void, Clark had a near-death experience where he encountered Jonathan Kent. 
Jonathan affirmed Clark and gave him a lot of encouragement. And the truth, the truth is that if Clark could have had that experience even two years from now, it probably would have done him a lot of good. But it's not two years from now. Clark's still adjusting to life without Jonathan. He's still too close to that particular loss. So Jonathan's words fall on deaf ears somewhat. In the episode Fragile, we see Clark take on the role of older brother to Maddie, a lost kryptonite freak girl who, let's face it, hasn't had it as easy as Clark did. Clark has obviously learned something from his experiences, though, because when Maddie tries to take a pound of flesh from her own father, Clark's there to talk her down. Clark knows that no matter how angry Maddie might be, no matter how justified her anger might actually be, killing somebody isn't the answer. And Clark now knows this from bitter experience. When he calms Maddie down, he's not doing so on a hypothetical basis. He knows exactly what she's feeling at that moment. That's what gives him the moral authority to tell her that she's on the wrong path. In the episode Mercy, Clark discovers that Lionel Luther has known his secret for nearly a year. Lionel swears that he's a changed man. He's not the same guy that trapped Clark in Bell Reeve and experimented on him back in the Mighty Season 3. And on the one hand, yeah, it's hard to argue with that. Lionel's had an entire year to exploit Clark's secret, to out him to the entire world, and completely ruin his life. And he hasn't done it. But on the other hand, Clark still has his instincts. And he also has Jonathan's warnings from the afterlife. Clark's not in a, in a position where he can afford to trust Lionel, and that scares the shit out of him because if Lionel ever decides to betray Clark and Martha, there's basically nothing he can do about it. And that pretty much brings us up to right now. Now, I've said that Smallville Phase 2 began in the dreaded Season 4. The start of Phase 2 is marked by Smallville reaching its visual zenith. From the dreaded fourth season through the end of the sainted seventh season, Smallville had never looked this good before, and mostly it had never looked this good again either. The upgrade to the show's visuals and aesthetics serves the tone of the story that's being told here. Smallville's days as a relatively grounded show are behind us. From here on in, the series is going to become more and more fantasy-oriented. That was true, starting with the dreaded fourth season, and it's and is reinforced this season both in terms of story but especially in terms of cinematography and visuals. Smallville Phase 2 got off to a rocky start with the dreaded Season 4, no doubts there, but this is still Smallville's prime. And not just from an aesthetic standpoint either. Everything that makes Smallville awesome can be found in varying quantities from the dreaded fourth season to the sainted seventh season. So without question, Smallville Phase 2 is my favorite era of this show. And with the fifth season, we're finally talking about what I at least consider to be quality material. So as a result, I've been a lot more excited about these retrospectives than ever before. Anyway, so that's that stuff. Now, last time I finished up by talking about episode 19, Mercy. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. 
Be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville Season 5, beginning with Episode 20, Fade. Sorry, I ain't sorry. Sorry, I ain't sorry. I ain't sorry. He trying to roll me up. I ain't picking up. Headed to the club. I ain't thinking about you. Me and my ladies sip dissy cups. I don't give a fuck chucking my deuces up. Suck on my balls, paws. I had enough. I ain't thinking about you. Middle fingers up, put them hands high, wave it in his face, tell him boy bye. Now you want to say you're sorry. Now you want to call me crying. Now you got to see me wilder. Now I'm the one that's lying. And I don't feel bad about it. It's exactly what you get. Me and my baby, we gone be all right. I see them boppers in the corner. They sneaking out the back door. He only want me when I'm not there. He better call Becky with the good hair. He better call Becky with the good hair. Continuing my analysis of Smallville's fifth season. Now, in the last retrospective, among other things, we talked about the episode Fragile, which marked the beginning of Lex and Lana getting together. At the time, that particular subplot uh, was starting up. It'd be fair to say that I wasn't crazy about it, but the more I've analyzed it over the years, the more I've come to realize just how flawlessly logical it really is. Another bit of business uh, related to the episode Mercy, which marked the beginning of Lionel Luther being openly in on Clark's secret. Said at the time that this is huge and will become an indispensable factor of future seasons. All of this is a long way of saying that the episodes from the last retrospective all began building toward the season finale this year. They moved a lot of pieces around the chessboard. And at this point, there are only a few more items that need to be organized before we can get to this season's big showdown. And that all starts with episode 20, Fade. Clark saves an assassin's life, which allows him to kill again another day. Deeper themes and implications. Part of my mantra for these Smallville retrospectives has been talking up Smallville's continuity. 
not sure how much I've really done that, though. But there's continuity out the ears here. The first several minutes of the episode require a pretty clear recollection of recent events in Smallville. You've got Jonathan's death, Clark and Lana's breakup, Lionel discovering Clark's secret, Lex saying that he wants to rebuild bridges, and all that fun stuff. If that's not enough continuity for you, Lois introduces herself to Graham in pretty much the same way that she introduced herself to Clark back in Crusade from the dreaded season four. Wait. Who are you? Lois. Lois Lane. You his girlfriend? <sighs> Not in this lifetime. I'm Lois. Lois Lane. Pleasure to meet you, Lois. On top of that, Chloe gives Clark a sort of familiar lecture. It's nothing. It's just Lana. Seth Nelson asked her out. What did she say? She said yes so fast it gave me whiplash. Look, Clark, jealousy's a tough emotion. Dad, I'm not jealous. Uh, well, maybe a little bit. But look, he asked her out on a date right in front of me. I just find it hard to believe she'd say yes. Clark, you made a really tough decision, son. You didn't want to put Lana in any more danger, but you can't have it both ways. Now, if you're not willing to go out with Lana, then she's perfectly free to go out with whoever she wants. I guess you have to accept it. Hey! Riddle me this. How does an assassin get in a completely sealed room unseen? You knew, didn't you? No, that's why it's a riddle. All those times that I asked you how Lana was doing and you avoided the subject like the plague. You knew about her and Lex. I'm sorry, Clark. But I didn't think it was my place to get involved. You're supposed to be my friend. I am your friend. You are? Then why didn't you say anything? Because I'm Lana's friend too, and she asked me to keep it a secret. I thought you of all people would respect that. You know how dangerous Lex is. Any friend of Lana's would never let her get involved with him. Look, Clark, I wasn't exactly jumping for joy either, but Lana's a big girl. Where are you going? Clark, where are you going? Lana has no idea what she's getting herself into. Clark, let me remind you that you broke up with her. That means Lana can date whoever she wants, with or without your written permission. I know, but I still care about her, and I don't want to just stand by and watch you get hurt. Look, I hate to be the one to say this, but you don't have a choice. What Chloe says is absolutely true. Lana's an adult. She can make her own decisions. If she wants to play tonsil hockey with Lex, well, Clark himself's the guy who gave her the freedom to choose. Fact is, people make their own decisions in life. Clark made his, Lana made hers. So it's not his business anymore to question her choice in boyfriends. Clark's used to rescuing people, but this is one situation that he just can't get involved in. It's not his call. But the dressing down from Chloe isn't the only call back to the past. Let me guess. Bad breakup? I've had a few of those. You're the guy from the courthouse. And you're a tough man to please. What's the problem? You don't watch TV? Wait. You sent that. 
You saved my life. If it wasn't for Clark Kent, I'd be in a morgue right now with the tire tracks across my forehead. It's the least I can do. But how'd you know how to find me? I never told you my name. That press pass around your neck did. And the fact that I'm familiar with the area led me straight here. Oh, you're from Smallville. Drove through last year on business. Clark, if the big screen's not your thing, what is? Help me out here. There must be something I can do for you. Your, uh, your thank you is fine. I appreciate the gesture. You don't need to repay me. I don't know how much you want it, son. But you can't keep it. Why not? I saved the guy's life. So you think you deserve a prize? That's not what I meant. Look, how about you drive the new one and I'll drive the old one? Everybody wins. This is not about winning, Clark. Jonathan's taught Clark well. The first time that we meet Clark and the pilot, he clearly thinks nothing about accepting rewards for rescuing people. Jonathan ended up having to straighten him out on that. And it's paid off. Jonathan's not around to stop him anymore. Lois and Chloe obviously think that Clark's a chump for giving Graham's TV and surround system back. You'll notice that even Martha didn't protest the gift. But Jonathan's taught Clark a lot of principles, not least of which is that a good deed really should be its own reward. And that's not just irrational moralism. I mean, think about it for a minute. Suppose somebody saved your child's life. What could you possibly give them to return the favor? There's nothing. Nothing. There's not a single thing in this world that's as valuable as human life. So any price tag that you try to put on that, any way that you'd attempt to return the favor, those things are ultimately really fucking dehumanizing because anybody's life is worth more than money or big screen TVs or exotic sports cars or anything else. This is where Graham and Lex both miss the boat. Now, Lex arguably has an excuse here. He may never have known anybody who did truly right by him. He didn't know how to respond to someone like Clark because in his experience, everybody has a price. Lex was raised in extreme wealth and privilege. Expensive gifts are all he knows. It's the only thing he could think of to really say thank you because he comes from a world where the only thing of real value is money. Graham doesn't get off so easily. He already puts a price tag on human life. He gets paid a fortune to kill people, so how the hell's he ever going to understand how pointless and ultimately destructive it is to try repaying someone for saving life? The fact that Graham later sent Clark a hooker? Touche, Turi Meyer and Al Simpdian. Touche. Still, putting aside the development of all the characters and whatnot, this is a clever and subtle way to pay homage to Jonathan Kent's influence. The man may be gone, but his wisdom lives on, and Clark wasn't just indulging Jonathan all those years and just sitting through all of those lectures. He truly was taking inspiration from his father. 
and I mean that's just that that's powerful stuff, you know. Anyway, another note of interest in all this is that Lois tries to discourage Graham's grand gestures. She's as uncomfortable with too swanky a date as Clark is with being repaid for saving someone's life. It's a small thing, I admit, but it goes a long way toward explaining why it's ultimately going to work out between Lois and Clark. And speaking of Lois, a few times this season, I've said that I think Lois has made googly eyes at Clark. She's even tossed a few flirty remarks his way, too. But if she really feels anything for him at this stage of the game, she's obviously not ready to admit it to herself. So, of course she's not going to admit it to Graham when he drops by the farm for a visit. Something else here is that Lois raises a really good point. She rhetorically asks why Clark's so interested in her love life. And that's a good question. She's met a variety of different men, none of whom have met with Clark's approval. One of them was Arthur Curry. Now, let's compare all this, shall we? Clark's also shown a lot of disapproval over Lana and Chloe's boyfriends over the years, but Clark's disapproval of Jason Teague began and ended with Jason being an assistant football coach at Smallville High. Once he lost his job, Clark was willing to accept him as Lana's boyfriend. Until he showed his true colors, that is. The rest of the time, Chloe and Lana have dated lunatics and psychos, so... Clark's disapproval was justified. But Lois is different. She was on her way to something with AC. And Clark still disapproved. Now, on the outside, superficially, AC was even more upstanding than Jason Teague seemed to be. But Clark accepted Jason as Lana's boyfriend. And he never accepted AC as Lois's boyfriend, even when he proved that he was completely on the up and up. Now, you can chalk that all up to coincidence if you want, but now that Lois mentions it, I'm not so sure about all of that. And I'm not saying it's a conscious decision that Clark's making either. I mean, don't get me wrong here. I'm just saying that she's got a point in all of this. So anyway, in other news, Clark can be a little conniving once in a while. When he wants to be. He visits Lex in the hospital and sees Lana holding Lex's hand. Now, understand, he's already found out that Lex and Lana are an item. That's kinda sorta how Lex wound up in the hospital to begin with. Even so, Clark jabs Lana just a little bit calls her a good friend for staying with Lex, but he knows damn good and well they're not just friends. Clark's baiting her. Lana sees it as an out, though, and dodges the issue by saying that someone should be there with Lex. She never says that she's just there as his, uh, as his friend, or for that matter, his girlfriend. She just, uh, she just says that she's there and lets, lets Clark fill in the blanks however he wants. That's a very... Lex thing of her to say, actually. Clark's obviously not happy with her avoiding the truth, either. But one way to look at all of that is that now the shoe's on the other foot. Lana's the one with a secret now. And Clark knows that she's got one. He even knows what that secret is, and if he's got any brains at all, 
He has to know that she thinks she's protecting him by not telling him the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help her God. But Clark's blinded by his own pain here. He doesn't connect the dots in all of this. Lana's doing to him exactly what he's always done to her, and she's even doing it for all the same reasons. But neither of them are very happy with this situation. And for that matter, neither of them really understand that their situations have now been almost totally reversed. This is the burden, and at the same time the price, for dishonesty. It's already caused problems between Clark and Chloe. Now it's causing problems between Clark and Lana. Chloe is the only one who really sees all the angles here, and that's probably only because she's so disassociated from it all herself. Now, Lana eventually does come clean with Clark about goings-on with Lex, and she's fairly honest with him, and even says that her motivation was that she didn't want Clark to find out about it from someone else. To prove what a good idea that is, I should remind you all that Clark already did find out about it from someone else. Clark says that she can't trust Lex, so Lana's reply is that she doesn't need Clark to protect her. Now think about that for a minute. She gets to feel that way because she doesn't know that Clark zipped in at super speed and snatched a bullet with her name on it in midair. Clark's secrets are once again what pushes Lana away. Clark can't and won't fess up, so Lana truly believes that she doesn't need Clark to watch her back. She doesn't know any better because Clark won't speak up. Anyway, Oracle, episode 21. The ghost of Jonathan Kent comes back and tells Clark to kill Lionel. Except, hey, it's not Jonathan's ghost, it's Milton Fine in disguise. Before we get going on the rest of my remarks for this episode, it's worth mentioning that Oracle is the 109th episode of Smallville. The show itself ran for 218 episodes. That makes Oracle the halfway point of the whole series. So, by numbers, we're about halfway through my analysis of Smallville as a TV show. Anyway. This is where a lot of what the fifth season's been building up to. By the time credits roll here, all the chess pieces are where they pretty much need to be on the chessboard for the season finale. This is the first season-oriented story that we've gotten in quite a while. So, another way to put it would be that this is a very plot-driven episode. This is the point in the season where the plot starts taking center stage, and so because of that, Summaries for plot-driven shows are necessarily shorter than character-oriented stuff. Now, that's not to say that there aren't any character moments going on here, because there totally are. And they're really good, too. For starters, there's some good continuity going on here with Void, where Clark talks about his near-death experience with Martha, and then mentions seeing Jonathan in the afterlife. I gotta say... It's logical that Clark wouldn't necessarily tell Martha about his conversation with Jarrell's ghost. At least, not right away. For one thing, it's a very private thing that happened. I'm not going to comment on the truth of this phenomenon, but a lot of people have reported having near-death experiences only years after they've taken place. It's a very personal 
and sometimes very traumatic thing for people to talk about. It doesn't matter if the experiences those people talk about actually happened. The fact is that they believe they've happened. And so because of that, it's true, at least for them, it's not easy for them to talk about. So I don't care what Jonathan had to say to Clark. It's totally understandable that he wouldn't run off to Martha right away and then blab about it. For two things, though, Martha's been having a tough time of it lately. She lost her husband. Clark had to at least suspect that she was fending off interest from Lionel. And she's been adjusting to her new career. She's got enough on her plate as it is. So Clark telling her that Jonathan's ghost mentioned that Lionel Luther knows his secret is probably not what Martha needs to hear right now. For the same reason, it makes sense for Clark to come clean with her here in Oracle. Jonathan's ghost was right about Lionel knowing Clark's secret. So, is it possible he's also right that Lionel's up to something really horrifying? Yeah, that's totally possible. Martha needs to know the truth now. I'm just saying that it works here. As I say, most of the cards are on the table with Fine now. Fine's finally revealed his true colors. The balls definitely move forward in all this, but more questions are raised with exactly why Fine went to all this trouble to vaccinate only Lex. I mean, seriously, what's the point of this shit? Obviously, we're going to get answers to that in the next episode, but what I'm driving at here is that Lex has a clearer understanding of what Milton Fine is, but he still has no clue what Fine's agenda might be. Other stuff. Again, I usually don't talk about stuff like acting, and the reason for that is because I care more about writing than I do acting. We all have our preferences, I suppose. But now and then you see a moment that you just can't ignore. And John Schneider playing Milton Fine in disguise is a moment that you just can't ignore. When Milton Fine was hanging around Jonathan, he obviously got a feel for Jonathan's mannerisms, but Schneider's delivery of Fine's dialogue perfectly channels James Marsters. It's easy to believe that it's Fine in disguise. It's a convincing trick, you understand, but it's still a trick. Schneider could have played the scene fully in character as Jonathan, but instead he did... Well, not, not exactly a James Marsters impression, but he took Marsters' style of speaking into account. It's just some amazing acting. I was really impressed, is what I'm saying here. Anyway, speaking of which... That scene is basically what sets up this entire episode. Everything that happens later comes from this scene. The whole idea of a, of a teaser is that it pulls you into the episode that you're watching. So, in that sense, you could kind of compare it to a comic book cover. Now, my point in saying all of this is that I wouldn't be surprised if the core idea of this episode didn't grow out of someone asking, Hey, what do you suppose would happen if Clark was hanging around Jonathan's grave and then, out of nowhere, here comes Jonathan and he says, get this, Clark, you have to kill Lionel Luther. I mean, how cool would that be? Lots of stories grow out of gimmicky cover ideas like that. I mean, hell, a lot of co classic comic book stories have humble beginnings like this where a cover image spawned the story that came out of it.
Sometimes you see a teaser in Smallville where you just can't help but wonder if the episode didn't come out of people spitballing teaser ideas. Another good example of what I mean by all of this is the teaser for Delete from The Mighty Season 3, where the episode kicks off with Clark trying to run Chloe over with his truck. Just to kind of give you another example to work with. Anyway, deeper themes and implications. Martha's got a few throwaway lines of dialogue that, considering how, how things have shaped up with Smallville, really are powerful and resonant. Clark, grief can play tricks on the mind. Mom, I know what I saw. It was Dad. His spirit is ghost, whatever you want to call it. Sweetheart, I see your dad all the time. Every morning when I wake up, I, I feel him beside me, but it's not him. And it's not his ghost, it's my mind wanting it so badly, I think he's really there. And right now, you're really angry with Lionel, and maybe you want someone to say it's okay to get back at him. Mom, this isn't the first time I've seen Dad. I've talked a lot about Clark and Lois lately, so no reason why Oracle should be any different, right? I thought you'd be outside Lana's dorm with your binoculars by now. I appreciate the concern, but Lana and I are none of your business. Please, Smallville. I've had three exes put under military surveillance. I'm hardly qualified to dish out post-relationship tact. But it's time for some tough love. Lana's going to move on. She already has. With Lex. And it sucks. But you gotta trust your gut that you did this for a reason. Whatever reasons guys have for dumping hot, smart, fun girls these days. Look, give her some space, Clark. Your whole Night Stalker routine, that is gonna ruin any of the good feelings that Lana has for you. If there are any. Look. Sometimes you gotta tuck your feelings away until it's the right time. Like stuffing dollars into a piggy bank for a bike you can't quite afford. Except I can't quite imagine there is anyone else out there. Well, you never know, Clark. Maybe when you finally crack open that piggy bank, you'll find that all this time you haven't been saving for a bike. You've really been saving for a Harley. There are times when I think you don't know me at all. And others who I think you know me better than anyone. No, that's what I'm here for, Smallville. One save at a time. Just interesting. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, other stuff. <sighs> Originally, I had a sort of dim view of Oracle, and a big part of that is because I didn't really understand something. Lionel's been going into trances and jotting symbols. This is part of his serving as Jarrell's Oracle. He receives coded shit like this, and then he writes it down. The problem here is that I misunderstood Clark's inability to read the symbols. Basically, Lionel scribbled the symbols out. Because of that, there, there was no real message for Clark to read and then understand. But I misunderstood it. I thought Clark just didn't understand what the symbols meant, even though he was loaded with an understanding of the, Krypton, uh, of the Kryptonian language. 
back in Rosetta from season two. But that was a mistake on my part. Clark could totally read the symbols. There was just no discernible meaning to it. So, I guess to kind of give you guys an example, you can know how to read. You can read prose novels or just whatever else, articles on the internet, just whatever it is that you're reading. But if you see, I don't know, maybe the symbol for the Apple Corporation... Well, if you're not already intimately familiar with uh, Apple products, the Apple logo may not mean a whole lot to you. That's the sort of thing that we're dealing with here. Anyway, where I'm going with all of this is to say that it's, it's sort of a pet peeve of mine, but Clark is from the, the planet Krypton. People from Krypton are called Kryptonians. Kryptonians are vulnerable to radioactive pieces of Krypton called kryptonite. Kryptonians speak, or used to speak, Kryptonese. Get it? Kryptonese is a language spoken by Kryptonians. It's small potatoes, I understand, but this is still one of those things that Smallville genuinely did kind of fuck up. Anyway, so my point here is that what Chloe did wasn't decode the symbols. She simply found the most commonly repeated symbols. Those symbols contain a message. And what does the message say? Zod is coming. Episode 22, Vessel. The big finale, Lex becomes Zod. You know, it's interesting to compare Smallville's various season finales to one another. As a rule, Smallville did season premieres and season finales as well as anybody, and I dare say better than most. Tempest from season one caught both the characters and the viewers completely by surprise. Tornadoes are funny that way. Exodus from season two was the culmination of a lot of characters' worst nightmares. Covenant from the mighty season three was wall-to-wall darkness, much like the mighty season three itself. You could almost want to compare this to kind of a Greek tragedy where everyone underwent these very sad and kind of ironic fates considering everything that they struggled against during that entire season. Commencement from the dreaded season four was tragedy striking what should have been a happy occasion. Now, as big and important as all those things are, Vessel from here in the fifth season is different inasmuch as this is the first time the entire world's been at stake. And I think it's another indication that Season 5 was originally supposed to be the end of Smallville. That's my little conspiracy theory, which I first shared back in the third part of the fifth season retrospective. So, if you want to hear some more theorizing, go there. But anyway. So when Al Goff and Miles Miller got the heads up that the, that the show was going to be renewed for a sixth season, well... They already had this season finale planned out. It was too late by then to deviate from that, so they simply worked with it as best they could. Whether that's true or not, there's no arguing that Vessel is the biggest, most ambitious thing the show has ever attempted, at least so far. And what's amazing is how much of it works, considering how unfamiliar it is for a show of this size to go to quite this scale. And honestly, so much of Vessel 
fits into deeper themes and implications that, honestly, it's tough to know where to begin, but here's one obvious place. What do you mean, taken? I mean, ripped from the earth and sucked into the sky. Now, his abductor did leave a calling card in the field, and from Lana's description, it sounded a lot like Zod's symbol. Lionel's drawings warned of Zod coming. It's actually happening. What is happening? I, I don't get it. I mean, I thought that Zod was trapped in that phantom prism other dimension thing. That's what I'm worried about. Fine knows I would not release Zod willingly. He's obviously changed strategies. So then Lex is part of plan B? Which means Lana's stuck right in the middle of it. Look, Clark, I know what you're thinking, and she used to come to you when she was in trouble, but that's all different now, okay? And you know what? That was your choice. Chloe, I don't feel like I've made any of the right choices lately. I was so angry with Jarrell, I didn't listen. I didn't listen to any of his warnings. But it seems like every time you turn to Jarrell, something bad happens. What if he's just trying to protect me? What if he's trying to protect all of us? I know you are still angered by the loss of Jonathan Kent. He was my father. I am your father. Pain is part of life, Carlyle, but you cannot let it blind you. Fine has returned. To release Zod, what am I supposed to do? Fine is merely an extension of the craft that can regenerate in any form. If Fine is part of this ship, then who is controlling it? It's not just a ship. It's the brain interactive construct, an advanced technology that will stop at nothing until its master, Zod, has been released. No, there's got to be some way to stop him. There is one way. Zod was imprisoned in the Phantom Zone for crimes that led to the destruction of our planet. Zod killed you. And your mother. And our entire race just as he will do on Earth. I won't let that happen. Zod's physical body was destroyed to prevent him from escaping the Phantom Zone. He can be freed if he finds a body, a vessel to inhabit. You must find the human vessel and destroy it no matter who it may be. There's a lot of shit to go through there. For one thing, Clark is for the first time starting to fully realize what Jarrell's been up to for the last several years. It's a bit of an epiphany for him. But for viewers who are paying attention, it's less of a surprise. As I said in part 5 of the dreaded season 4 retrospective, here's the thing. Jarrell knew something like this could happen. Because of that, he tried to take Clark off the farm back in season 2 so that he could find the stones, unite them, build a fortress, and all that other stuff. Jarrell's message inside of Clark's ship said that he should rule the human race with strength. And I don't think Clark misinterpreted anything. That's truly what Jarrell wanted Clark to do. 
Why? The only way to explain that is to go into spoiler territory, but obviously I've not been too shy about doing that lately, so to spoil just a little bit, we see a spaceship at the end of commencement. The passengers thereof are disciples of Zod, and they run around causing havoc all over Smallville. And as bad as they are, they're just a taste of some pretty horrific shit that's still to come. Jarrell knew this threat was out there. He also knew they'd do whatever they could to bring Zod to Earth. Jarrell therefore expected Clark to take over the world, not to enslave everybody, but to prepare the human race to resist the disciples of Zod, and if necessary, Zod himself. Everything that Jarrell warned Clark about ends up coming to pass. Now, there's an argument that Jarrell should have been more upfront with Clark about what he was up against. But as we're going to deal with much later on, I don't think that was ever a possibility. He couldn't be more honest with Clark. But like I say, I'll get to that much later in the future. For right now, though, this puts Jarrell's deal with Jonathan from The Mighty Season 3 into some kind of better perspective. Jarrell knew that as long as Clark was on Red Kryptonite and living it up in Metropolis, there was no hope that he'd ever unite the stones. So, back in the Mighty Season 3, Jarrell cut that deal with Jonathan to give Jonathan powers so that he could uh, bring Clark back to Smallville with the proviso that Jonathan give Clark back to him later on. And from Jarrell's standpoint, I'd say that probably seemed like a perfectly fair deal. Shit. Given, uh, given what we've seen from Jarrell so far, I'd say that's downright generous. But obviously, Jonathan had other plans. Not that it matters in the end, though. In the end, Jarrell did forcibly recruit Clark into searching for the stones. Now, he had to threaten Jonathan's life and brainwash Clark in order to get him to do it, but he pulled it off in the end. For a while, anyway. What Jarrell never counted on was Martha using the Black Kryptonite to separate Clark from his Kal-El side. Without any other option, Jarrell essentially begged Clark to search for the stones, and in the end, Clark decided not to, so Jarrell pretty much had no choice but to basically wait for the crisis to come and then attempt to guide Clark through it as best he could. But Obviously, he can't resist throwing Clark a couple of I told you so's once the shit hits the fan. Now, you might ask why, why couldn't Jarrell have just been more direct and open about what was in store if Clark didn't do as he was told? Well, again, I don't want to get too spoilery here, but what, I, what I'll say for right now is that this version of Jarrell graduated from the tough love school of parenting with probably with highest honors. He doesn't feel the need to explain himself. He gives orders, and he expects them to be followed. And in fairness to Jarrell, had Clark just shut the fuck up and done what he was told, things would have gone a whole lot smoother. Now, yeah, sure, it probably wouldn't have ended with Clark becoming Superman, 
But then, that wasn't Jarrell's original plan anyway. Clark could have left Smallville back in Season 2, assembled the stones, overthrown all the world's governments, by force if necessary, and, be and begun preparing the human race for what happens after the second meteor shower. That was Jarrell's original plan. But as I say, Jarrell's plan got scotched early on. Clark disobeyed Jarrell time and again, so the meteor shower and the aftermath of it, those things are all on Clark. He can't blame someone else for this. He owns it. Again, not to get too spoilery, but you'll notice that Jarrell never behaves in such an adversarial way after the dreaded season four. True, he's distant, isolated, and usually a complete dick, but he won't be the villainous, would-be tyrant that he was in Seasons uh, 2, Mighty 3, and Dreaded 4 ever again. Now, this is all reading between the lines, but it's the only explanation I can think of that accounts for all of Jarrell's actions. Plus, his dialogue from a minute ago supports all this stuff. In fact, we are really reading between the lines now, but you could argue that Jarrell was impressed by how Clark handled not only the meteor shower and all that other stuff from seasons five and six, con considering that he did all or most of that on his own, and so because of that, Jarrell ultimately might devise a new plan. Instead of turning Clark into a benevolent dictator, he may decide on a very different future for his son, but that's all in the future. For us. In the here and now, in commencement, Jarrell basically tells Clark that he's a complete failure. And from Jarrell's perspective, he is. He's accomplished absolutely nothing that Jarrell is set up for. Apart from bringing Clark into a better understanding of Jarrell's methods, everything I said up to this point is strengthened in Vessel, both in my dreaded season four comments and also in, in relation to the Season 5 retrospective. So, through everything, Clark's resisted Jarrell, and this season, he's refused to participate in Jarrell's training. So, as a last-ditch Hail Mary pass, Jarrell gives Clark the kryptonite dagger to kill whoever Brainiac chooses as his vessel. Understand, Jarrell clearly doesn't value human life the same way that Clark does. It's one of their many differences, in fact. But in this case, Clark's really the only one who can truly be said is responsible for things ever getting this bad. Again, if Clark had just kept his mouth shut and done what Jarrell told him to do back in season two, he and mankind would have been ready for Namek, Aether, Brainiac, and Zod. Clark probably wouldn't have ever needed to use lethal force if he had just done what Jarrell told him to do from the get-go. But because Clark resisted Jarrell's plans, he refused Jarrell's training and lashed out at Jarrell over Lana and then Jonathan's death, it's really on him that things have gotten this bad. Clark has to kill Brainiac's vessel. It's no more complicated than that. Another neat thing in all this, though, is the thematic resonance going on here. 
The artificial intelligence Jurel chooses Lionel Luther to be his vessel. The brain interactive construct chose Lex Luther to be Zod's vessel. It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. Another neat angle is that in Oracle, Brainiac, an artificial intelligence, disguises himself as Clark's dad, which is to say Jonathan, and orders him to kill Lionel, which is to say Jarell's vessel. Here in Vessel, the AI Jarell orders Clark to kill Lex, which is to say Zod's vessel. And since we're talking about thematic reinforcement here, back in the pilot, Lex was caught in the middle of a field, got nailed in the meteor shower, and lost his hair. Lionel pulled him out of the field. Here in Vessel, Lex was abducted by the spaceship from the middle of a field and then given superpowers. Lionel tried to pull Lex out of the field, but Lex threw him across the field. In each case, Lex is in some way or another victimized by remnants of Krypton, and then Lionel shows up, ostensibly, to render assistance. In Vessel, though, Lex throws Lionel around like a ragdoll. Something, something, symbolism, rejection of Lionel as his father, or whatever. Speaking of Lex's powers, though, there's a sequence in Luther Mansion where Lex fires off a gun into his hand to demonstrate his new powers for Lana. When Lana realizes that Lex is becoming a Kryptonian, she makes a face that's just short of being totally repulsed. That's interesting because Clark gave Lana a pretty impressive display of his own superpowers in the first timeline of Reckoning. Lana's reaction was a lot different. She was amazed and mesmerized. She was even a little confused. But she was ultimately happy, if for no other reason than she finally knew the truth. Her reaction to Lex's demonstration of power, though, is a complete 180 from Reckoning. Here, she's remorseful, sorrowful, and even a little disgusted. And let's face it, there's really no hiding her fear either. Another angle, though, is kind of on top of all of that. Lex acquires superpowers, and the first thing he does is tell Lana about it. Now, Clark hid that stuff from her for years. Now, yes, Clark had his reasons. It's been demonstrated time and again that Clark's power is very fucking dangerous knowledge. Doesn't matter, though, because that isn't how Lana's going to see it. Lana sees secrets as a lack of trust. Further, she interprets disclosure as love and acceptance. It doesn't matter if the truth is more complicated than all that. What matters is how Lana sees it. It takes some effort on her part, but Lana is able to overcome her fear and revulsion at what Lex is becoming. So, all in all, you could argue that Lana's immediate acceptance of Clark when she learned of his powers in Reckoning's first timeline is Lana being truly in love with Clark. And her fear and disgust at Lex's transformation, here, in this episode, is her natural reaction to anybody who has those abilities. Which she ultimately overrules because Lex is showing a tremendous amount of faith in her, 
by showing her his new powers. She returns Lex's disclosure and, and his show of trust with disclosure of her own. Specifically, she's overheard Clark tell Chloe that he has to kill Lex. Now, out of context, that's a pretty damning thing for Lana to overhear. And Lana didn't relate all the nuances of it to Lex. So she told Lex the very worst angle about a hypothetical scenario that Chloe and Clark were spitballing. I'm going to come back to that later, though. And then there's Lex's angle on all this. He rhetorically asked Lana how he could keep something like this from her, the person that he loves more than anybody, by which he's, he means his power. Now, it's true. Lex doesn't have Clark's depth of experience with growing up with powers, but Lex has to know that there are people out there eager to exploit other people. He's very well aware of how nasty people can be to each other. And he still made the decision to immediately tell Lana about his new abilities. I mean, doesn't that say something about where Lex is coming from when it comes to Lana? All of this reinforces not only the fact that Lex and Lana's entire relationship is predicated on Clark, but Lex's entire existence now revolves around his obsession with Clark. So what did you decide, Clark? Are you gonna kill me? You can't blame me for this, Lex. You did this to yourself. Oh, come on, Clark. You love it. Ever since that day on the bridge, you've always seen yourself as my savior. The one thing that would pull me off the dark path I had started. See, that's why you cling to the idea that there's still some good in me. You don't want to face the fact that you might have failed. Or maybe I just can't believe that someone would have so little willpower. It's a little hard to compete with the iron willpower it takes to kill one of your best friends. How did you know I was going to come back like this? You don't realize how much danger you're in. I used to think you had this strong inner core. You were so virtuous. And yet you lie. All the time. To me, to Lana, to all the people who cared about you. What kind of sick person would do that? If you thought this friendship was so doomed from the beginning, then why did you fight so hard to keep it? Because I wanted everything you had. The family, the inconspicuous life, the loyal girlfriend. Well, at least I walked away with the part you loved the most. You're not yourself. Or maybe I finally am. I've mentioned all this stuff in the past, but it's always nice when the characters confirm it for me. Originally, Lex was a spoiled, pampered little Luther Corp prince. But Clark saving Lex on the bridge back in the pilot gave Lex an entirely new purpose. And odds are it started off as genuine friendship. But the closer Lex got to Clark as a friend, the more Lex wanted to be Clark. It wasn't enough to know someone like Clark. And after a while, it wasn't enough to be friends 
with someone like Clark. Before too long, Lex's jealousy made him want to be Clark. But obviously, that's not possible. So, as much as possible, Lex started working to take everything that Clark has. And as Lex himself points out, the only thing he could really take from Clark was Lana. Apart from helping engineer their breakup, Lex's interest in Lana begins and ends with the fact that she's Clark's ex-girlfriend. It wouldn't be enough to have gotten into Lana's pants before Clark did. No. Clark had to get there first. Only then could Lex give it a shot. I mean, there are no words for how sick and twisted that is. But at the same time, it's also hard to argue that it's not true. Here's something else. Lex and Clark's confrontation in the barn culminates with Lex attacking Clark. Clark defends himself and gives, uh, gives Lex the usual superpowered toss across the room. Lex then realizes that Clark has powers. And that sheds new light on their fight. When Lex first attacked Clark, he thought he was moving in for the kill. He thought that he'd be able to finish Clark off right then and there. Clark caught him off guard with his own powers, though. Lex didn't know that Clark even had powers until after he decided to move in for the kill. What I'm saying here is that Lex never intended Clark to walk away from their confrontation in the barn. He went on the attack because he thought it'd be easy pickings. Lex wanted to use his new powers to kill Clark Kent. Interesting, yes? In other news, Jarrell's instructions to Clark were very clear. Clark has to kill Zod's vessel. It doesn't take very long for Clark to suss out the likelihood that Zod's vessel is Lex, but Clark's incredibly conflicted about it. There's got to be another way. There's got to be some other option on the table apart from murder. But Jarrell, Lionel, and of all people, Chloe, don't see it that way. What's one life compared to the millions that would be lost if Clark doesn't kill Lex? To them, the ends justify the means. But for Clark, this is a zero-sum game. From a moral standpoint, there's fundamentally no real difference between the death of one person or one billion people. Loss of life is tragic either way. His view, evidently, is that it's splitting hairs over nothing to debate whether the loss of one life is somehow morally superior to the loss of millions. Blood is blood. The exact quantity is incidental. Now, bear in mind that I've argued in the past that Superman taking life shouldn't be an absolute rule. For things like purse snatchers and bank robbers, sure. There's a criminal justice system ready, willing, able, and eager to prosecute those kinds of people. But in truly universe-threatening matters, my view is that Superman can't really afford to be idealistic 100% of the time. The best example I can think of is whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, where all of creation was threatened by what Mixius Pitalik had become. 
If Superman didn't shut Mixus Pitalik down for good, nobody else was going to be able to. So, in that story, yes, Superman crossed the line. But it's hard to, to get stakes much higher than that. If ever there was a case where Superman should violate his own code, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow was pretty much it. Granted, Zod would be a threat to the entire world, but not necessarily all of existence. And as bad as Zod and Smallville may be, he's a lot lower on the totem pole, at least as far as malevolent threats, than an unhinged, completely evil Mixus Pitalik is. But Clark and Smallville isn't going to budge on this. Zod's vessel or not, killing Lex is not an option. Period. End of discussion. And again, considering the choice Clark ultimately made in Oracle, this is just consistent characterization. If Clark wasn't willing to kill Lionel back in Oracle, and he wasn't, he's not likely to want to kill Lex here in Vessel. I mean, this is all some fucking incredible character development, and it's one reason why it blows my mind when people say that character motivations and plot developments just come out of nowhere on Smallville. Now, admittedly, it's not like a Chris Nolan Batman film where there's a five-minute-long scene where the characters didactically explain everything they're going through, which seems to be what a lot of fans expect, but just because something is written above your level doesn't make it bad writing. Anyway, sorry to get angry here. I, just, I don't see why I should ignore amazing character development just because some people are apparently too clueless to get it other stuff. Just before Clark rushes off to meet Lex, Chloe kisses Clark full on the mouth. Now, bear in mind that when Ve uh, Vessel aired, I still had a major chip on my shoulder about the dreaded fourth season. I wasn't exactly looking for the good when it came to Smallville, so I viewed Chloe kissing Clark as kind of baiting those of us who supported a Clark-Chloe relationship. As I did at the time. It just felt cheap, arbitrary, and completely random. Now, it's not much of a spoiler to say that nothing major really comes from this, apart from the season finale hysteria wrapped up with Vessel. It gets touched upon a bit in the future, but it's not a major issue. So I was somewhat right to be skeptical about all of this at the time. But for all the wrong reasons. I shouldn't have taken it so personally. Something else to consider, though, is that as far as Chloe knew, this really was the end of the world. It's not a stretch to think that she might have acted hastily out of fear that she'd never see Clark again. And, again, nothing comes from this, but I, I, I kind of have to admit that I shouldn't have been such a dick about it when Vessel first aired. It's water under the bridge, maybe, but it still needed to be said. And now it has been. Vessel ends with Lionel and Chloe being attacked by a crazed mob of looters, while Zod, Lex, and Lana make out on top of the roof, uh, the uh, Luther Corp tower, while Metropolis burns in the background, and Clark's trapped in the Phantom Zone. And that's season five. As I said before, I had a seriously bad attitude about Smallville thanks to the dreaded season four. 
and it lasted for a pretty long time and colored my perceptions of seasons five and six. But with the benefit of hindsight and detachment from the dreaded season four's shittiness, to me it's evident that season five's a drastic improvement over the dreaded fourth season. When I first started this retrospective, I suggested that it's possible that I would stop viewing Season 5 as kind of a Smallville also-ran and start really valuing Season 5 as a Smallville story. And indeed I do. The main issue at play with the dreaded fourth season is that Clark's isolated from most of the core conflicts and story arcs of the season. He's pretty much just there to save the day. That's a, but that's really about it. Now, you could argue that the dreaded Season 4 gave Clark a struggle to overcome, a quest to fulfill, and you know what? There's even a leg to stand on there. But either way you look at it, Clark's quest for the Stones of Knowledge didn't put him into any kind of confrontation with Genevieve or Jason Teague, who were the villains of the piece. And as I said when I was hashing my way through the dreaded Season 4 retrospective, I'll be the first to admit that not all of the problems and troubles that Smallville had that year are Goff and Miller's fault. All of those flaws, you can't blame Goff and Miller for all of them. The thing is, though, Season 5 doesn't have those flaws from beginning to end. Clark either directly drives the conflicts of the story, or else he's directly and personally affected by them. The only reason Lex was ever targeted by Brainiac is specifically because Clark foiled Brainiac's efforts to unleash Zod. Because of that, Brainiac had to enact a plan B and use Lex as Zod's vessel rather than Clark. That affects Clark both from the angle that he was the original target of Brainiac's scheme and that Brainiac choosing Lex as the new vessel affects Clark due to his complicated relationship with Lex. In terms of other things, losing Jonathan was a direct result of Clark's poor judgment and bad decisions. It's going to affect him for a good bit of the rest of this show's run. More examples. Clark's breakup with Lana ultimately is what drove her into Lex's arms. And this was because of Le uh, uh, Clark's myriad secrets. Lana won't get away with this for free. She'll ultimately become a very different person as she adapts to her relationship with Lex. There are other examples going on here, but my point is that Goff and Miller took the lessons of the dreaded season four to heart. In the fifth season, and in fact in all subsequent seasons, Clark would never be left out of the plot threads and conflicts ever again. Starting in the fifth season, he's always going to be a major element of every story. In fact, you could reasonably say that as Smallville progresses from here on in, Clark's going to become more and more vital, not only to the resolution of the plots, but also to the initiation of them. Clark's going to increasingly be in on the ground floor of everything that happens. He's going to be intimately involved from start to finish, introduction to climax. And that's a new but increasingly common element of Smallville. When supervillains were introduced back in the first season, Clark usually had nothing to do with them acquiring superpowers except through proxy, such as his ship arriving on Earth along with the meteor shower. And nobody seemed bothered by this. 
But as I say, the evidence suggests that the dreaded Season 4 seriously put the fear of God into Goff and Miller, because they made double sure to tie Clark directly not only to future antagonists being vanquished, but in the genesis of those antagonists. Clark would be along for the ride at just about every step of the way. To use an example from right here in the fifth season, Brainiac's mere presence on Earth and his success in using Lex as Zod's vessel is because Clark didn't obey Jor-El and, in doing so, take over the world and organize a resistance years ago. It could be said to be Clark's fault that Namek, Aether, and Brainiac weren't run out of town the minute they arrived. Had Clark done what Jarrell told him to do, that's most likely what would have happened. Instead, though, Brainiac was able to use Clark as, or at least attempt to use, Clark as Zod's vessel, and he came damn close to succeeding. But when Clark vanquished Brainiac back in solitude, Brainiac simply came up with a new plan. On top of all that stuff, Goff and Miller raised the stakes big time in the, here in the fifth season. More stunts, more effects, more action, more non-Superman comic book characters, and much bigger threats and conflicts for Clark to sort through. Like I said, the final product mostly fell on deaf ears at the time as far as I was concerned. Back when Vessel aired, I could admit that the fifth season was a substantial improvement over the dreaded season four, but I was still too shocked and betrayed by how awful the dreaded season four was to really be fair to the fifth season. But as I say, time's got a funny way of vindicating these things. I long ago changed my opinion about the fifth season, but re-watching these episodes now for this retrospective really puts this entire season into a whole new light. You see, I was always of the opinion that the fifth season was good. It was okay. I was, I was just lukewarm about it, even after I forgave everything that went wrong with the dreaded season four. But seeing these episodes again, here and now, showed me just how tragically far off the mark I always was. It's been a real eye-opener to find out just what the fifth season brings to the table. That said, I've got to admit that Clark's growth in Smallville up to now has been significant, but not always noticeable. There are occasions aplenty when you need to analyze the fine details before you can really see how much, or for that matter, how little, Clark really has changed since the pilot. Sure, he's, he's better now at fighting supervillains than he was in the pilot, you know, no doubts there. In fact, the first few seasons of Smallville show Clark slowly but noticeably improving his game when it comes to dealing with supervillains and kryptonite mutants. But in terms of his day-to-day -day character, as I say, it's sometimes harder to see. And that includes the fifth season. But, that's where it ends. The sixth season is going to show Clark taking his first truly noticeable steps toward becoming a person different from whom we were first introduced back in the pilot. To talk about that stuff now obviously would leave me less stuff to talk about when I start hashing my way through season six. And that'd be no bueno. But... Suffice it to say that Clark's day of less obvious and visible character growth, those days are numbered. From here on in, 
we're gonna we're, we're gonna be seeing a character who grows not only in his powers but starts growing into himself as a person in other news we're not very far off from the meat of what this retrospective was always intended to tackle everything that I've done up to this point you could arguably view it as a kind of prologue for Clark's true journey beginning in season 6 and going from there I'm glad that you've stuck with me and I promise that it only gets better from here on in but that's all for now be right back after these messages superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two, two, So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O, 
T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. 2 True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.